From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. So-called culture wars are not a modern phenomenon. Here in the United States, politicians and political parties have used contentious issues to create political energy and drive people to vote since at least the 1920s. But in our modern political landscape, wedge issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, trans rights, and even critical race theory have become almost central to political discourse, and our guest today says this is very much by design. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and author whose work focuses focuses on issues around religious liberty, politics, policy, and education. Her work appears in the New York Times op-ed, on NBC, in the New Republic, and in the New York Review of Books. She began focusing on these issues more than a decade ago after the public school her child attended began hosting what are called Good News Clubs that work to convert children to fundamentalist Christianity while creating the false impression that their activities are endorsed by the school. That led to her 2012 book, Book, the Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children. In her latest book, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, Stewart lays out how the religious right here in the United States has portrayed itself as a social movement focusing on cultural issues, but is actually a well-organized political movement that has evolved into a Christian nationalist movement that seeks to gain political power and to impose its vision on all of society. Catherine Stewart had planned on being in in Southwest Florida on October 9th to speak at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Greater Naples, and we were set to interview her in advance of that event on Wednesday, September 28th, but the arrival of Hurricane Ian disrupted those plans. I still wanted to talk to her about her book, though, so we chatted yesterday. Let's hear that conversation now. Catherine Stewart, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we were originally going to have you on this show because you were going to be in Fort Myers in early October. We were set up to talk to you on Wednesday, September 28th at 1 p.m., which is uh, like literally exactly when Hurricane Ian made landfall. So that disrupted all of that. Um, but I still wanted to talk to you. But real quick, are those kinds of events something that you commonly do? Yeah, in the last month, I've spoken to a Lutheran church in Pueblo, Colorado. I spoke to a Baptist church in Hendersonville, North Carolina, several other churches. I think a lot of folks these days are really concerned about the rise of religious nationalism. A lot of people of faith are concerned about what they see as a violation of their tenets of faith and a kind of exploitation of religion. So I, I'm starting to hear from a lot more uh, faith leaders and, and uh, working with, with other faith leaders to try to figure out you know, what it is that we're looking at and what we can all do about it. So for starters, can you give us the short version of what first drew your attention to this subject? And, uh, and it basically led to your first book, as I understand it. But can you kind of just flesh that out for our listeners? Sure. Well, the short version is... In 2009, I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my husband and our kids. Our son was a baby. Our daughter was in the first grade. And something called a Good News Club came to our public elementary school. Now, Good News Clubs are after-school clubs targeting children in their very earliest years of learning in public schools. And they give them the message that without Jesus, they're going to go to hell. And I could see that in our community, kids attending the clubs were being confused into thinking that their public schools endorsed this particular 
form of religion, and the results were fairly predictable. You know, public schools have a cloak of authority in their minds, so they thought that these outsiders coming into our schools were, you know, representatives of the school and that this is what the school wanted them to believe. So they would, you know, figure out who their non-Christian peers were uh, in class or they or the, the, their peers who were the wrong kinds of Christians, perhaps Catholics or United Methodists or things like that. And they would target them for what I can only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. And here's the thing. I don't have a problem with kids talking about religion with their friends at school or inviting their friends to church. What I do have a problem with is kids being deceived into thinking that their public school supports a particular form of religion and then being encouraged to use that misinformation to target their peers for bullying and bigotry. So, you know, as I started to research these good news clubs, I realized that the leaders of the good news clubs were offering these kids points or prizes or even candy for recruiting their peers to the club. And this just seemed wildly like uh, anomalous in a diverse public school community. So, uh, you know, kids, religion, uh, public education, it's a perfect storm. (laughs) Everybody gets upset. So I just really wanted to understand, you know, how these clubs were allowed in public elementary schools in the first place, you know, and um, what they were really after. So that's how I fell down this rabbit hole of (laughs) religion and uh, public education and politics and the more I learned, the more concerned I became. I, I realized that the sort of the focus on public education was just one small part of a much larger attack, actually, on America as a modern pluralistic constitutional democracy. So, can you explain what you mean? And you know, I, this is something I pulled out of your book. Um, the first thing to know about Christian nationalism is that it's not a religion. Can you break that down? Sure. It's not the whole of Christianity. It is not about a a dispute over theology or the culture wars. Really, it's a political phenomenon. It involves the exploitation of religion for political purposes. I think of it as combining two things, two kinds of things. On the one hand, it's a set of ideas and ideology. But on the other hand, it's a political movement, an organized quest for power. So the ideology boils down to the idea that America's founded as a Christian nation, but Christian here referring to a conservative or fundamentalist conception of Christianity and all the things that that entails. And the ideology says that all of our problems in America stem from the fact that we have supposedly uh, forsaken this heritage of our founding. But this ideology is really a tool. It's a very useful tool for a political machine that turns this story into political power. And in The Power Worshippers, I really get into the different features of that machinery. It's, um, as I show in the book, it's both leadership-driven and also organization-driven. The organizational infrastructure is made up of a number of features that I think we can group into categories. So we have right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, networking organizations that get the movement leadership on the same page. There are legislative and data initiatives, a sort of vast far-right messaging sphere. A lot of the movement operates actually through a certain kind of religious networking infrastructure. And taken all together, it's a means of persuading a large subsection of Americans to vote for the political candidates that the movement favors. And 
what they end up doing is empowering these movement leaders and enshrining the policies that they want in our laws and society. You write that this is not a grassroots movement. Can you explain, you know, it seems like it's a grassroots movement if you if you watch it from the outside, but your uh, your research for this book seems to show otherwise? Absolutely. You know, I think when you're talking about the rank and file, you're talking about a very wide range and diverse range of people with a lot of different interests and agendas. And, you know, when a lot of them, let's say they you know, vote for the candidate who promises to end abortion or defend what they, you know, act in defense of the traditional family, they're really not making a statement. They're not like trying to destroy our democracy. They're not trying to change the basic ways in which our government is run. They're really kind of saying something about their identity and what they value in themselves. So, you know, you can't Call, you know, are all of them Christian nationalists? Absolutely not. But what, they, what they're doing is often with their vote lending support to a Christian nationalist agenda. Like, you know, Christian nationalism, uh, like authoritarianism, is a political pathology that afflicts political systems. It's not a sort of, um, you know, just something that comes from the rank and file. But when you're talking about the leaders of the movement, the heads of the organizations that I mentioned, I, I could throw out some names, but um, there's so many, perhaps I won't mention them here. You know, the leaders of the right-wing policy groups, the legal advocacy groups, the networking organizations alike. What they want is, you know, they create culture war issues. They tell you what's, they tell the rank and file what's gonna matter in election cycles. So I'll just give you one example about, you know, the way I do a lot of my research is I go to right-wing conferences and strategy gatherings and meetings. I remember back in 2015 or so, I went to the annual, it was called the Values Voter Summit, and now it's called Pray Vote Stand, but back then it was called Values Voter Summit. It was a huge gathering in Washington, D.C. of the movement's leading activists, strategists, and, you know, major politicians show up, like, you know, Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell. Trump spoke at one. You had... Um, you know, Steve Bannon spoke at one. You had the lot of, you know, sort of big heavyweights, you know, Lindsey Graham, everybody. Every single speaker stood up there and said, we have to talk about transgender bathrooms. I'm thinking, why? Like, why do we need to talk about this? Is this really like our country is facing a lot of issues, like real consequential bread and butter issues that affect families every single day? Why do we need to be talking about this? But you can see that this is a movement that had sort of done their research. They're trying to find culture war issues that they can litigate that are going to draw people over into their side. And all of a sudden, this is all you're hearing about. It's the same with this sort of... Um, critical race theory that all of a sudden is dominating the news. There was a study by Media Matters of Fox News, I think prior to March or May of 2020, there were maybe a tiny handful of uh, references to critical race theory on Fox News. And then all of a sudden, this fellow named Christopher Rufo, who is a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, it's one of the think tanks that lends its support to the movement. So Christopher Rufo came with this up with this idea that critical race theory was going to be the way to go. He posted on Twitter, I don't have his quote in front of me, but I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, we're going to decodify the term critical race theory and then recodify it. So anytime anyone hears something that they don't like on the news or that sounds crazy, they're going to think critical race theory. And then all of a sudden there were thousands, according to this study, thousands of references to critical race theory 
on Fox News. Now, is critical race theory all of a sudden being taught in America's public elementary schools or high schools? No, of course not. But this is what the movement does. Its leaders find these issues that they can use to peel people over to their side to get you know, certain subsection of Americans to vote in ways that the movement wants. They're going to, you know, drive support for the far right political candidates who are going to, you know, answer to the movement leaders' demands, really. What are the foundations of this movement? Is this something that goes back just to the 80s or is it deeper than that? It's deeper, but I think the movement in its current iteration can be traced to a moment in the late 1970s or early 1980s with the founding of a political movement called the New Right. People like Paul Weyrich, Phyllis Schlafly, Howard Phillips, they felt the Republican Party had become too liberal, too soft on communism. They were also concerned about the rise of influence of liberal theologians like Paul Tillich and Nut Niebuhr. And they really wanted to drag the Republican Party to the right also really upset about the civil rights movement and its consequences, and especially about the fact that the IRS was looking askance at segregated religious schools, many of which were run by sort of, you know, very right-wing political preachers like Bob Jones, who called segregation God's established order. And the IRS was looking at these schools and saying, well, you know, why should we be giving tax privileges to these racially segregated schools? Well, this got these preachers who were also had been drawn into the new right very upset. And so they needed an issue that was going to unite their movement. And there's a very interesting, you know, they were having a series of meetings. There's a very interesting moment that uh, the professor Randall Balmer, who was part of some of those meetings, has written about. They knew that, like, stop the tax on segregation wasn't going to be a really effective rallying cry for the movement. So they were sort of looking for an issue that could, you know, unite their movement, draw in conservative Protestants, conservative Catholics, which were very much a part of the movement as well. And also, you know, as Howard Phillips said, bring in some of our fringe fundamentalist friends or something like that. And they went down a laundry list of issues and abortion wasn't like first on their list. But when they got to the issue of abortion, it was like a light bulb went off. They thought, huh, that could really work because... It's all about identity and ideas about family and gender and, you know, gender anxiety, you know, seems to be a kind of rocket fuel of this movement, sort of makes everybody upset and interested. So it's over time, you know, at the time, most Protestant Republicans actually supported liberalization of abortion law. We, I mean, we can't forget that the Southern Baptist Convention hailed the passage of Roe versus Wade in 1971 and 1974 when it passed they issued statements affirming support for liberalization of abortion law. A lot of other Republican heroes like Betty Ford, Ronald Reagan, even uh, Barry Goldwater, they supported uh, liberalization of abortion laws. But it was over time this movement purged these pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. And, you know, there's a really fascinating book about this that Phyllis Schlafly wrote called How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life think about that, how it became pro-life. The Republican Party was not anti-abortion, but they made it so over time because they needed an issue. It's almost like easier to unite a smaller number of people over a more like 
radical issues, set of issues than it is to get a large group of people with incredibly diverse interests, you know, it's like herding cats. But over time, listen, this is a movement that pur purged those pro-choice voices from the Republican Party. So the sort of a party of life that we see today is really a modern creation, the anti-abortion unity we see within the Republican Party. It's a modern creation. It was created for political purposes. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and author. Her work focuses on issues around religious liberty, politics, policy, and education. Her latest book is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. If you'd like to engage with the show about this topic or any of our episodes, just use WGCU social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. You mentioned that you do spend time going and talking to churches. Can you characterize how much push back or sort of outspokenness there is from within various Christian denominations to this um, Christian nationalism movement? I think most Americans, religious and non-religious alike, reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. I think people of faith in general would like to see us uh, return to a time when there's not this sort of overt politicization and exploitation of religion. But, you know, there is a sector that is, has been exploited, I feel. And, um, and that's a, a deep concern, a grave concern for a lot of, a lot of Americans. You mentioned, you know, your first book and, you know, how you came across this rabbit hole had to do with your, your child in school, in public school. Um, you know, public schools have always sort of been on this agenda. And in the last two or three years, we've seen a drastic rise in the focus on school boards. Is this all directly tied to this movement? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, I have a friend who's a second grade math teacher in California, and he said, all of a sudden, and he's been teaching second grade math for years, all of a sudden, all these parents are accosting him and saying, are you teaching critical race theory to our kids? And he's like, I am teaching second grade math. Let me show you my textbooks. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's a lot of misinformation running around and this misinformation has been promoted from the top. I think, you know, listen, we all went through a pandemic, those of us with children in school as I, you know, we had two kids at home and it was really challenging for a lot of parents. And uh, I think the movement saw an opportunity to kind of exploit that frustration that we were all feeling, uh, legitimately feeling. I think a lot of schools were put in a very difficult position. There may have been some mistakes made, but I think in many instances, if not most, the mistakes may have been, you know, we're honest, we really didn't know what we were dealing with, especially at first. And that uh, frustration has been exploited and turned into, you know, the, these groups like Moms for America and Defending Ed, which are, you know, have ties to many of the leadership of those organizations have ties to Republican Party leadership. Then you have right wing organizations um, and think tanks like the Heritage Action and others, oh, Family Research Council, actually lending support to those efforts. You know, running, I, I attended a family research council that was called School Board Boot Camp, where it's all about the culture wars. Now, if any of the, those of us who've actually been invo you know, in, involved in our school boards or attended school board meetings, most of what we're dealing with has to do with 
things like staffing or activity night or things, you know, budgeting. Um, uh, sometimes there, there may be some curriculum issues, but the way they get these parents involved, it's like all culture wars all the time and incredible hostility being directed toward people who are serving their communities in good faith. I've spoken to a number of school board members and leaders who say all of a sudden they're getting death threats. They're getting these bizarre, wild accusations that they're teaching, quote unquote, critical race theory, which is something that's, you know, a whole other thing that's taught in a few corners of some graduate schools. It's never been taught in public schools to any degree, if at all. Um, they're getting these crazy accusations. Now, you know, we have to remember there might be some things that are taught in some school, public schools some of the time that you're not going to agree with. And that's one of the reasons why parents need to stay involved in their kids' um, education. But these wild accusations have been radically out of bounds. And, you know, for the movement leaders, it's a twofer. Number one, it engages people, uh, sort of drafts a new generation of local activists that can then be funneled into local politics. So it's almost like a new Tea Party movement. But number two, it and this is by design, they aim to denigrate public schools, destroy faith in public education. This is a movement that has hated public education from the very beginning. Well, Jerry Falwell set the agenda in 1979 when he said, I hope to see the day when there are no more public schools Churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. D. James Kennedy, another very wildly popular pastor who, you know, um, they called him an electronic minister. He had a lot of radio shows, was very influential. You know, he called public schools atheistic, amoral. And he said if they had, had been done, you know, by, by to children by a foreign enemy, it would have been considered an act of war. They hate public schools because they teach critical thinking. And they teach children how to get along with others, including those who are different. And um, so that sort of broader attack on public education is something that I've you know, seen for a very long time and has deep roots. But with this sort of new CRT nonsense where it's definitely opened and entered a new phase. Um, you were talking earlier about the origins of this sort of being tied to segregation, race issues. Do you think that or, you know, from the time you've spent around activists and, you know, and leaders in this movement, you know, is that something that they're aware of or are they sort of willfully ignorant to that in the current context? Well, it's interesting. It's hard to know what people know and what they don't know. Like we can't know what's in anybody's mind but one thing I will say is that a lot of movement leaders these days, look, they're driving support for politicians who are engaging, you know, supporting often race-based gerrymandering, voter suppression. They're tied to, um, they're driving support for these politicians who are engaging in the CRT, what could be seen as a form of race baiting, right? And the movement leaders seem to have no problem with some politicians who routinely denigrate uh, political leaders of color and people of color in these different ways. But one thing I will say is that they do seem, a lot of the more astute movement leaders, I'm thinking about people like Ralph Reed, are very sensitive to accusations of racism. And in recent years, they've made a real effort to draw conservative-leaning pastors of color, in particular, with like a particular focus on conservative-leaning Latino pastors, 
into their movement. In fact, um, they've created these organizations, pastoral organizations created like um, this one called Ministros Hispanos del Sur de la Florida. It's like um, Hispanic ministers of South Florida. What they do is they actually work with Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition. A lot of them show up at Ralph Reed's annual Road to Majority Conference. And they too are litigating the culture wars in their congregations. Look, movement leaders know if you can get the pastors, you can get a certain percentage of their congregants. And certainly among many Latino voters in certain areas and districts, we're starting to see a shift in, in voting habits. Um, but um, go ahead. overall, I mean, that doesn't negate the fact, of course, that I believe it's like nine out of 10 folks who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 were white people. So those two things can exist at the same time. From your understanding and your research, you know, what are the ultimate goals of this movement? Well, the movement leaders want, I would say, three major categories of things. <laughs> they want power for themselves and their political allies and the politicians that they support, political access. They want money, not just private money. The movement sort of relies on sources like enorm like very extremely wealthy individuals contribute huge amounts of money to this movement, but they're also after public money. So for instance, a lot of the attack on public education, the efforts to sort of reduce faith in public education come at a time when they're trying to get more and more public money for religious schools. Like they know if they can you know, siphon a certain amount of that taxpayer money for private religious schools, which they're doing through vouchers and other schemes, then you know, the money will sort of flow without end. And the third thing that they really want is policies that favor certain approved religious and political viewpoints. And also they want the, you know, not just government employees, but also private employees to be able to direct their contempt. They want policies that they're actually contemptuous toward people who hold the wrong religious and political viewpoints. I looked it up. In 1990, 85% of people in the United States identified themselves as Christians. Over the years, that's declined. It's now at 65% in 2020. Is this decline well, part of what's driving the energy in this movement? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that we're seeing a loss in the moderate middle, and that's really quite sad. I mean, we're seeing kind of a rise of the more, like the hotter forms of religion. So the political scientist Ryan Burge, who studies Pentecostalism, has said, and Pentecostalism, by the way, it's, it's also a very diverse religious movement, and there are progressive Pentecostals, but Pentecostals overall score highest on measures of Christian nationalism as an ideology. And Pentecostalism has tripled in size in the last, I believe it's 30 years. And that's pretty dramatic growth if you think about what's happened to denominations such as the United Methodist Church you know, or the Presbyterian Church. Um, so the sort of harder forms of religion appear to be on the rise, whereas more moderate forms of religion seem to be fading away. And then if you talk to young people, a lot of them are really turned off by this sort of politicization here frankly, from people all the time who have stopped attending church because they felt like their pastor was all of a sudden getting too political or they didn't see their pastor criticizing some of the stuff that they you know, saw in our politics that seemed like a complete exploitation of their faith. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that 
overall decline is, is linked in some ways. But um, I think along with that, you know, the movement is very good at recruiting new sort of areas of support. Um, last question, and we've got about two minutes, so you can't go on that long, but um, can you reflect on, it might not be fair to ask you this kind of question with only two minutes, but can you reflect on the results of this past election that we just had? Um, it seems like there was some disappointment among the political right as far as they didn't have the success that they seemed like they were going to have. Uh, do you see that as evidence of you know, this movement not being as strong or successful as some might have thought? Listen, I think that um, we dodged a bullet, but it, it whizzed right by our heads. Um, I think that, um, listen, this is a movement that has promoted the lie that Americans are, quote unquote, divided on the issue of abortion. The clear majority of Americans support access to abortion in some form and access to abortion uh for for a variety, a wide variety of reasons. And I think people also recognize that when you take away the right to abortion, listen, you, you, you've read my book, so you know uh, there many women have problems in their pregnancies that require abortions to literally save their lives. That happened to me. I write about it in chapter 11, where um, uh, unfortunately it was between my children. Um, we were trying for a baby and, and I started bleeding out and needed to have an abortion to save my life. My experience is not uncommon. And I think that the right has been pushing a lot of issues that are grotesquely unpopular among most Americans. And that's why if I, I'm, I don't like to make predictions, but if I'm going to make one, this is it. I don't think we're going to hear a whole lot about abortion before 2024, because I think they got sort of scared by the midterms. They're going to be talking a lot about the sort of you know, trans stuff, and we're going to hear about the CRT stuff. Like, again, our country, whatever you think of those issues, our country has some real problems. You know, it is harder for many American families to succeed than it ever has been because of rising wealth inequality. We have problems with infrastructure. We have problems with, frankly, a lot of polarization that's, you know, our, our parties are not engaging in this sort of give and take. The Republican Party certainly is is just sort of blocking stuff that they don't like just because they want to, you know, make the other party fail. And and the, 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 the cultural issues that the right is litigating now, these are not the bread and butter issues that are affecting families today and, and helping them to succeed. But they're going to litigate those uh, and deflect away from some of the cultural war issues that they know are, are now knows are real losers for them, like the issue of abortion rights. All right. Well, that is unfortunately all the time we have, but I want to thank my guest. Catherine Stewart is an investigative reporter and author. Her work focuses on issues around religious liberty, politics, policy, and education. Her latest book is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Catherine, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You can find links to her latest book and her 2012 book, The Good News Club, The Christian Rights Stealth Assault on America's Children, on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WM. MKO Marco Island, 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.